Hey there, thank you for watching online with us today with literally people from all over the world. We're so thankful you've joined us. We hope that these messages are a blessing and an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. However, these messages are only meant to be supplemental. They are not to take the place of a local body, a local church, or a local pastor. And so, if you live in the Middle Tennessee area, please come to one of our local campuses, connect with us, worship with us, and be a part of that local gathering. If you aren't near the Middle Tennessee area, reach out to us via Facebook or Instagram or email. And we want to connect you with a gospel-centered, Bible-believing church near you that's going to help you to find life and live sin. Again, thank you for watching online with us today. We're prayerful that these messages are a blessing in your walk with Christ. God bless you and thank you for watching. We're studying through the book of Judges through this summer, uh, looking at some of these portraits of deliverers that God led to lead his people uh, in Israel during this time. And so it's an amazing series of looking at uh, incredible people for the most part, some not so incredible people, but incredible encounters that are true historical accounts of God doing amazing things to restore his broken People. And this morning, as we continue in it, what we're going to find in Judges chapter 3 is where we're going to be at. We find a true underdog story, right? An underdog story. And I, here's, here's the thing about me. I, I'm not like a big movie guy, um, but I love sports movies in particular, especially those that are like unexpected underdog story kind of things. Like I'm, some of you aren't going to listen to me after I say this. I've never seen a Lord of the Rings movie, okay? I'm just not into that vein of film. I'm sorry. Um, but I've seen every sports movie imaginable, okay? And several of them I've watched on uh, repeat over and over and over and over and over, okay? The movie Hoosiers is one of my favorite of all time, an underdog basketball team. Uh, Rudy is one of those, right? You've got things like Remember the Titans and all those kind of things. And then this movie called Glory that's actually an underdog story from the Civil War, the first all-black regiment, unbelievable story of reconciliation and the underdog kind of uh, pulls through in an amazing way. It's a heart-wrenching story, a great, great film. Anyway, all that to say, I love an underdog story, okay? Uh, when you think about American history, one of the greatest underdog stories uh, is a man who, in my opinion, was one of my favorite presidents for a couple of reasons, Abraham Lincoln, right? If you think about Abraham Lincoln's story, the man was an incredible underdog, right? He was born to illiterate parents in the early 1800s in Kentucky. Well, some people say he wasn't born in Kentucky, but that's a whole other thing. Um, but he was born to illiterate parents, right? I think at the age of nine, his mom died. Uh, he had all these, he got two failed business endeavors. Uh, he failed in a lot of different ways. He, he, he eventually, he had a fiance that died. He had eventually got married though and had four kids. Two of them died and, and he had everything seemingly going against him. He was this big six, four lanky dude, wore the tall hat to make him look even taller. He was not very pleasing on the eyes, politically correct way of saying he was ugly. And he was, it was kind of, a, it was an unexpected leader, right? He was an underdog in many ways. And that's one of the reasons I, I love looking at him as a president in our history. One of the other reasons is, is the man fought to end slavery. And though he was an underdog leader, he was an unexpected guy to come in and do things. He made things happen and finally, eventually signing the Emancipation Proclamation, which we know was the beginning of a process that even some ways we're still dealing with today, but it was the beginning of a process that needed to happen. And so I love looking at him. And this morning, as we look at Judges chapter three, we find another underdog, a guy by the name of Ehud. 
And this man was an underdog leader. He was an unexpected leader. Now, if we back up before we get to Judges 3, there's some things that were happening in Israel's history that led us to this point, right? What had happened is is God had told the people, and this happened in Exodus and then in Joshua. And Joshua and Judges are back-to-back books. So Joshua sort of is just, it all kind of, it's linear. It keeps on going into the book of Judges. But what had happened is, God had led them towards the promised land. They're, they're moving towards it. And God has said, I want you to conquer all the land along the way, including the Canaanite land. I want you to take over everything. And essentially, I want you to destroy all the people along the way. All right, that's what God tells them to do. And they're pretty faithful to that mission, except for the fact that they find these little pockets of small groups of people, and they rationalize in their own mind and justify it by saying it's compassionate and say, you know what, we're going to leave them untouched even though God has told us to take them too. And what we find in that is those small pockets of people end up growing and getting powerful and more strong, and they end up taking over the Israelites. And before we even jump into the text this morning, the context leads us to a biblical principle that I think is important for us to think about, which is this. Partial obedience is actually disobedience. Right? Partial obedience is actually disobedience. And what happens is as partial obedience, those small little pockets of disobedience grow, they lead to great disaster. And that's what we see happening contextually this morning when we get to Judges 3, is disaster has come because of their small little pieces of partial obedience, which was disobedience in and of itself. And so as we get to Judges 3, we find these people, they've been taken over by one of those small pockets that they left, the Moabites. And as we get there, we're challenged to think again, even before we get into this, is there are places in my life where I'm leaving these small pockets of disobedience. Small things that seem not a big deal, but I'm just leaving them. I'm just leaving them and letting them fester because the reality is, is what those things do is they grow. And they grow to the point in this account where the people of God have been taken over by a new leadership. So in Judges chapter 3, what we're going to do this morning, we're going to kind of work through this text, and I want to identify several things along the way, but I'm going to begin reading in uh, verse, verse 12 of chapter 3. It says this, And the people of Israel again, again, right? This is the second leader that God places for them during this season of the judges. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered them to himself. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. For 18 years. So what happened is the Lord, uh, rather Israel, had gone back into turning to following their own desires again, pursuing their own pleasure, right? And so they got into this pattern where they would turn to the Lord and then they would turn back to their own desires. And they would turn to the Lord and they'd turn back to their own desires. And at this point it says, for 18 years, while they're pursuing their own desires, they fall under the leadership, the reign, the rule of this guy named Eglon, who is king of the Moabites, who has taken over one of those lands that they left. He had taken over one of those lands that they left. It was a land that they had actually destroyed, but they didn't finish the job. They didn't finish the job around that area. It was the area of Jericho that they had taken over. And so the God, what we find doing then is God has placed in leadership and rulership over the people of Israel, this man named Eglon, who was an evil leader, 
So God has handed over his people to an evil leader who had taken over because of what they didn't do before. And now during this new season of disobedience and turning to their own desires, the Lord has actually handed them over to someone that none of us would want to follow, that none of us would want to follow. We're reminded that God is in charge of all of these details of rulers and kings around the world, that the Lord is in charge of this, and that the Lord even uses an evil ruler. God is not the author of evil. James 1 is very clear about that. But we see here that God is working sovereignly to use an evil ruler to shake the cage of his people and get their attention. So much so that for 18 years, they're under his rule and reign. For 18 years, they pursue their own desires and they're under his rule and reign. And what we find is that this man has actually come in and taken over and rebuilt a city that we know in Joshua as Jericho. Now, if we back up to the book of Joshua, you know the story, right? They march around the walls, the giant walls of Jericho, and they blow the trumpets and the walls come tumbling down, right? And that happens. And if you can recall back in early in Joshua, when that takes place, God says to the people, he says this, he says, cursed is any man who rebuilds this city. Well, Eglon rebuilt the city. So he is a cursed, evil man that God has handed over his people to. God is using this evil leader to shake the cage of his people, to grab them by the face mask and get in their face and wake them up. The Lord using the most unlikely of people and for the Israelites, the most unwanted of people. And we get to verse 15 then, and it says this, that in the midst of that, the people then of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer or a judge named Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent tribute to him by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. There's a lot of E names here, okay? There's two different guys, all right? You have Eglon, who's the king of the Moabites. He's the evil ruler that's leading Israel, that's ruling Israel right now. The people of Israel are falling, have fallen prey to him. Then you have this guy named Ehud, who God now has appointed as a deliverer or a judge or a leader for the people of Israel to deliver them out of their current situation, right? And it says here that the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They came to the realization that what they had and what they were pursuing wasn't satisfying. They came to the realization that what they thought was good for them was not. They came to the realization that there was no hope in the life that they were pursuing. And so it says that they cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord, and it says that the Lord responds by bringing them, sending them a deliverer by the name of Ehud. Now, Ehud, then, this deliverer for the people of Israel is described this way. He's a left-handed Benjaminite, right? So he's a Benjaminite, meaning that he, he, was, he, was, a, he was of the people of God, right? And what's most important about that is we understand that he was a God-fearing man. But it describes here that he was left-handed. And now what we're going to find in this whole passage this morning, that there are details that seem kind of small and at times and a little bit seem kind of gross and really we don't want to hear them. But the reality is, is that God is providing all these details for a very important reason. There's not a word that God uses in the Bible that's accidental, right? They're all on purpose. And so it describes him as a left-handed man. What the Hebrew actually suggests is that his right hand was closed up which suggests one of several things. 
One, that he had some sort of, of handicap or, or uh, incapacitated right hand that wasn't able to work. Or it was, it was less a hand on his right arm. It was lacking a hand. He, did, he had a right arm without a hand. And that could have happened because of uh, birth. It could have been something that he was born that way with. It could have been something that happened during his life. But the likelihood is most that, that he was less a hand or his hand was, his right arm was unable to be used. And so therefore he was a left-handed man. Why is that important? Well, here's why. Because what we see showing up here early on in the book of Judges is that God uses the most unlikely and weak of people. The most unlikely and weak of people. And in an ironic kind of way, the Benjaminites were the people of God's right hand. And God raises up a deliverer for his people that lacks the use of his right hand who comes from those people. Well, why is that significant? Because what it should do for us, see what sometimes we do when we hear these underdog stories is we think, oh, I feel so bad for him. Oh, what a heart-wrenching story. Oh, I can't imagine having that. Oh, I can't imagine dealing with that or feeling that way. But what it ought to do is it ought to resonate with us because we of all people know our own weaknesses, don't we? You know, when we look in the mirror in the morning, we know it all about us. We know our shortcomings and our failures. We know what we're incapable of but want to be able to do. We know what we lack that people around us have. We know what the ideals of the world are that we don't, we don't meet. We know all of these weaknesses about ourselves. We know what happens in our mind and in our heart. We know the things we do when nobody else, that nobody else knows. We know all of this about us. And so what these stories of men like Ehud, who was unexpected and incapacitated in some ways, but yet God uses in a significant way, what these stories ought to do for us is encourage us that God uses the weak, that God uses the less than perfect, that God uses the underdog, not make us go, man, I feel bad for him. It ought to resonate with us because that is us. That is us. And I hope maybe for you this morning that you hear this, that in the midst of your weakness, God wants to use it. God wants to use your weakness. Not in spite of your weakness, God wants to use you, but God wants to use your weakness for his glory. And God can use your weakness for his glory. And we see that come off the page here as we consider this reality that, that even in our weakness, God can use us. And it says that Ehud brings to this king, Eglon, he brings to him a tribute, which is essentially an effort to try to pay him off, right? So that maybe he'll let these people go. He'll let the Israelites be out from under his rule and reign. And then we continue reading what Ehud does as he prepares to take this tribute to the king. It says in verse 16 that and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges. It was a cubit in length and bounded on his right thigh under his clothes. So what we have here is he makes this two-sided, this double-edged dagger, right? And he, he puts it under his clothes on his right thigh, on his hip here, okay? Now, why is that significant? Because here's the thing. Ehud may have had some visible weaknesses that were perceived by others as limiting him in a lot of ways, but the man was brilliant in some ways too, okay? So what you have is you have, you have this left-handed man who has put on his right side his weapon because he knows 
One, when he walks in the room, he's lived enough life at this point. He knows when he walks in the room, everybody's going to think less of him and think that he's incapable of doing anything of, of harm to anybody. But on top of that, he knows if they check him in any way, because he's about to walk into a room with a bunch of security. If he walks into the room with a bunch of security, he knows if they check him, they're not going to check his right side because that's his weak spot. They're going to check things on his left. So he's a brilliant man, right? He's a brilliant man. He's a left-handed man that is brilliant, which some would say is uncommon, right? Sorry if you're left-handed in the room. I did hear some statistics recently um, about left-handed people, and maybe I shouldn't share them, but I will anyway. Um, because somebody after the first service said uh, about left-handed people, and it, was, it came from a left-handed person. So I just want to clarify that, all right? And I'm right-handed, so this may seem biased. But he said, uh, at the same t- there are more left-handed geniuses in the world than anybody else, okay? Which is awesome, maybe. Uh, but there's also more left-handed people in mental institutions in the world as well. So you can take that for what it's worth. If you're left-handed, I'm sorry you're offended by it. I did also hear recently that left-handed people, somebody told me this yesterday. This is totally random, by the way. Um, somebody told me that left-handed people are more likely to make less money because they're so creative they don't know how to walk in a straight line. And so uh, just what I heard. And so don't be offended by that if you're left-handed. There were some left-handed people in the room earlier that actually agreed with it. So for what it's worth. Um, but, but you have this left-handed man who's a genius. He's made this brilliant plan, and he's come up with this plan, and he puts this. And so what we find him doing is that he's taking his weaknesses, and God is using his weaknesses as an opportunity. God is using his weaknesses as an opportunity. I have, I have a friend who's just become a friend of mine in the last few months, and my friend's name is Daniel. Uh, Daniel is an amazing young man. He's nine years old. He'll be 10 in the next couple months. I think in August, Daniel turns 10. Um, and Daniel is on the, the higher end of the autism spectrum. Uh, Daniel is one of the most intelligent um, and genuine people I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, Daniel and I have been spending some time together over the last couple months because he has a lot of questions about the Lord. He has a lot of questions about church and a lot about the Bible. And so we've been spending time together uh, every couple weeks, and we just sit down and we talk, and we ask, he asks questions, and, and we have a, an amazing time. But what's amazing to me is that Daniel is having an impact on the lives of people through his perceived weaknesses, through the things that God has, has placed in his life during this season, through the things that a lot of people would look at and go, things don't add up for him. So much so that Daniel's, if you're familiar with uh, kids or people who have uh, autism of any kind, what happens to, at times is they, they find these obsessions and they get committed to these things and they do them over and over and over and over. And it can be an incredible joy to see this happen. Well, for Daniel right now, his obsession, you know what it is? Watching our services over and over and over all week long. So Daniel watches LifePoint services all week long, over and over and over, and he memorizes the, the sermons. He knows every song. Um, and it's super, super cool to see. If you follow Phil Wickham on Instagram, by the way, Travis got a video of he and Daniel singing one of Phil's songs recently, uh, and Phil shared it on Instagram, and it's super, super cool to see. But, um, but, but he loves that, and so that's his obsession right now. But let me tell you what God is doing through that in his family. It's re-engaged his parents with the Lord. It's re-engaged his family in the church because God is using Daniel's weakness. He's using his weakness. God is creating opportunity through these perceived weaknesses. And that's what's happening here in Judges chapter 3 is Ehud, who has this perceived weakness of an inability to use his right arm, God is using that to put him in environments and giving him opportunities that he never would have had otherwise that nobody else could have gotten. 
God is using those perceived weaknesses to create opportunities. And we get to verse 17, and it says this, that he, Ehud, the leader, the deliverer of the Israelites, it says that he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And again, there's details in here we're going to try to unpack a little bit more in just a second. But it's in the Bible, all right? I'm not making that up. Verse 18, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all of his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said again, I have a message from God for you. And he, the king, arose from his seat. See, Samuel describes Eglon here as a very fat man. I know it can be offensive, right? But God's not trying to be offensive. God is trying to provide detail for a reason because of what we're about to see is going to happen. And there's going to be more understanding of why he's described that way in just a second. But this, this past week, we tried to do a little bit of research to try to figure out a little bit more about Eglon, right? This king of the Moabites. He's described this way for a reason, for whatever reason it is. Again, I think we'll see more of it in just a moment. But in doing some research, we decided to see if we could find any sort of like mock-up, like a draft or a picture uh, a representation of what Eglon may have looked like, because it's hard to guess, right? I mean, so we're, we're kind of zooming around, kind of looking Google images, doing some searches, and trying to figure out what it is that this, this man looked like. Um, and we didn't do that deep of research. And now, there was no cameras, no DSLRs, no iPhones to take pictures with back thousands of years ago when this Eglon uh, lived. But this was the mock-up that we found that seemed the most accurate. Um, I don't know if you can see that or not. Um, that's, uh, that one may be of King David, though. I'm not sure. Um, uh, no, there's, there's no way to know exactly what he looked like, right? There, there's no way to know that. Uh, but, but the point is, is that God gives us detail in the scripture on purpose, right? And he's described this way, again, for a very important reason that I think we're going to see a little bit more of here in just a second. But let me describe to you what's happening right here, right? Ehud has come and given this offering to try to get out from under the rule of this man. Essentially, he said no. They turn around and go about their way back to their people. And so Ehud is heading back to their people, and they get to this place called Gilgal, and he sees something that reminds him of something that leads him to turn around and go back. I want to talk about what he saw for a second. It says that he saw idols or stone altars at Gilgal. We're going to back up into Joshua again for a second. And if you can recall in Joshua, when Joshua leads the Israelites across the Jordan River, if you can remember, it says that they gathered some stones from the base of the Jordan River as they were crossing it. And when they crossed, they, they, they stopped at this place called Gilgal that they built a monument to remember what it is that God had done. And where they built it there, this was like this recommitment thing. They circumcised everybody that hadn't been circumcised yet. It was this massive moment of recommitment for them. And they built that altar, that monument there to commemorate what it is that God had done. And so what happens, though, in, in history and during this time is that when a new leader or a nation or a people took over an existing people's land, they would either knock down those altars and destroy them and build new ones, or they would build larger ones around them to demonstrate the weakness of the ones that were there before them. And so one of those two things had likely happened because Eglon had taken over this whole region. And as he was taken over this whole region, they had either destroyed or built around larger altars from this monument that the people of God had built when they crossed the Jordan River. 
And so what happens is Ehud leaves after, after trying to buy his way out of, rule, of the rule of this man. He leaves and he gets down the way a little while and he sees this place where those altars were, the monuments that his people had built. And he sees the new altars that have been built in their place. And that triggers something in him. And what it is is this. He remembers the mission that God had called him to. He remembers the mission. He sees those things and he's, he's reminded of the good things that God has done. And he's angered. I believe in a holy way. He's angered by the things that these people have done to his people. And he remembers the mission that God has called him to as a deliverer to deliver his people, to deliver God's people from the rule and the reign of this evil king. And so he turns around and he goes back. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and ask you this. What's set up in your life to remind you of the mission that God has placed you on? What are the things that trigger trigger you to recall the mission that God has put you on? You know, my hope is that next Sunday, when we celebrate baptism, it triggers that for you, that you remember the mission that God has put you on. I hope later this morning, when we celebrate communion, that it triggers that in your mind and you remember the the mission that God has put you on. I hope when we gather together to worship, it it leads you to remember the mission that God has put you on. I hope when you leave here and you go somewhere for lunch, if you can get through the monsoon that's happening out there and you get somewhere for lunch and you see a lost and broken family sitting at the table next to you, you remember the mission that God has put you on. When you get to your job tomorrow and you see the lostness around you, I hope it triggers you to remember the mission that God has put you on. When you pause in your home tonight or tomorrow to worship together as an individual or as a couple or as a couple with kids or an individual with kids or whatever combination it looks like, and you worship together in your home or you have time with the Lord in your home, I hope it triggers a a memory of the mission that God has put you on. I hope when you open your Bible and you read it, Lord willing, daily, that the things you read in these pages trigger your mind to remember the mission that God has put you on. We have to have these things because if you're anything like me, and maybe some of you are way better off than I am, I forget the things I need to remember most, right? I, often, I forget the things I need to remember most, right? I've got, Lord, will, I thank the Lord I have this device that helps me remember things, okay? Now, I have to tell it to remember, remind me of those things but I ha- because I don't remember the things that I need to remember. And usually it's things like the mission of God, the glory of Christ, my own salvation, what God has saved me from and what God has called me to. It's easy to just become mindless about those things. And so some of us, we need to put intentional reminders in our lives so that we see them, we hear them, we experience them, and it triggers us to remember the mission that God has called us to so that we'll turn back to it. And that's what happens here for Ehud. He, he has this thing that triggers things for him. And he goes back and he, he's remembering what it is that God has called him to. And he gets there back to the king. And it says, he says, I've got a secret for you, right? Which always perks up everybody's ears, right? It's why we gossip, because we love to know secrets about people, right? We get interested when there's a secret. Like, for example, if I would have told my kids this morning before I left the house, hey, I've got a secret for you, they wouldn't have listened to anything anybody said for the next five hours until I got home, Right? There's no way they would have listened to anything. They, they would have been thinking, they want to know what the secret is, okay? And we're all big kids. That's the way it is, right? We want to know the same things too. 
right? So he says, I've got a secret for you just to kind of, kind of get the interest flowing a little bit there. And then he goes on further and he says, I have a message from God for you. Now, the word that, that Ehud, the deliverer of the Israelites, uses for God here is, is not Yahweh, which would have been the standard, uh, most prominent name for the God of Israel, but he uses the word Elohim, uh, which would have been a more easy to receive, easy to hear word for God in that culture, because it could even be translated at time as God's, right? And so what, what he's saying is, I, in a way that will be understandable, I have something that you need to know from the Lord. And essentially, the message that he needs to relay is, you're about to die. And so we get to verse 20, and it says this. He says, And Ehud reached with his left hand. He took the sword from his right thigh, and he thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. Would you? I wouldn't have pulled it out at that point either. And he goes on, and it says, And the dung came out. And yeah, uh, you don't have to read this out loud too. I do. <clears throat> Ehud, it says in verse 23, then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and he locked them, right? So, so he takes out, right? He takes out this, the dagger that he's formed from his left thigh. He pulls it out and it says that he shanks him. Like this is a prison fight kind of thing. He shanks him and he stabs him in the belly so much so that the knife keeps going in and he's kind of like, ah, you can keep it, right? I don't need my knife back. I know I formed that one real nice, but you can have that one. And it says that he cuts him in such a way. And this is why he's described as a fat man earlier, just to be clear, because this detail plays out this way, right? And, but what we find is it says he stabs him in such a way that essentially it cuts open his intestines and everything starts coming out, right? So if you're new to Life Point this morning, I want to say welcome and um, <laughs> hope you're encouraged by this. But we preach first by verse through the Bible, so that happens. Um, well, we come across way more interesting stuff than this when you preach first by verse through the Bible too. Just so that's, just, that's sort of the teaser for you. Come back next week. Um, but, but, but he, he stabs and all this stuff comes out, right? And, and again, why is this detail here? Well, I think part of it is the reality that there's something happening here that God wants us to understand that he's the one working out all the details, right? Because immediately it says that he stabs him. He says, oh, you can keep the sword. All this stuff kind of starts coming out and happening. And he scrambles around and it says he basically, he goes and locks the door and jumps out the window, right? And here's what I think is interesting about this deliverer that God has placed, this, this man without a right arm, this guy who perceived, is perceived as being incredibly weak. It's clear that his desire is to honor the Lord and to be faithful. His desire is, seems so pure and so healthy he has a clear understanding of the mission of God. Remember, he's gotten to this place. He saw it. It triggers. He remembers. He starts going back to the king to, do, to complete the mission that God has put him on, right? The reason that he formed this dagger that's on his right hip back, in the, back whenever it happened before this encounter was for this mission. And so he's, he's reminded and he goes back. But it's, it seems like his desire is good. His commitment to the mission is honorable, but he has no plan, Right? And maybe he's a standard left-handed person. I don't know. But, but he has, it seems like he has no plan. But, but here's what's cool about that, is that God is working out every single one of these details perfectly. Right? God's working out. Why all the stuff to come out? Well, as we're going to see in just a minute, he locks the door and his security guards come up and they're like, this smells like something's happening there that we don't want to go in, so we're just going to leave him for a while. Right? It seems silly. It seems disgusting. 
And maybe, maybe he's using a little bit of humor here. I, I, I can't tell, but, but at the point, my point is this, is that God is working out these details to accomplish his plan. He's working out these details to accomplish his plan. And I think sometimes in our lives, what we would do is we get so paralyzed by knowing all the details, wanting to know all the details, that we don't do a thing. And we just stand here because I don't know what's going to happen six feet down the road. We're paralyzed when God's called us on a clear mission. He's called us to have a healthy desire, and we don't move because we don't know what we're going to step in on step one. Or maybe step 14. So we just stand paralyzed. But God's shown us and he's promised us that he's the one working out the details. And what he's also called us to and reminded us of is to go. That's why Kurt this morning is with a team in Brazil. That's why there's a team from LifePoint campuses that is in Bangkok right now. And it's why there's a team that either is there or getting ready to go to South Dakota this week because we know the call to go. I guarantee they don't know all the plans exactly how they're going to play out this week. If you've ever been on a mission trip, you don't know what's going to happen, right? Be flexible lest you get bent out of shape, right? That's the, that's the mission trip mantra because something's going to happen you don't expect and you don't want. Now, the same is true for each of us in our lives this week. I can guarantee you, you don't know every detail of Thursday, God does. But I can also guarantee you this. He's called you to go and be faithful and live sent on Thursday. To walk faithfully with him on Thursday. We can know that beyond a shadow of a doubt with absolute clarity that God has called us to go, to be living on mission, to be faithful to him, committed to what he's called us to, growing in our desire for him and our faithfulness to him without knowing all the details. And that's what we see happen here. Ehud's setting an example of that for us in many ways. And he's faithful to it. So it says he scrambles around, he locks the door, essentially he jumps out the window. And we get to verse 24 and it says, that when he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. And when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and they opened them and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sierra. Right? His security guards show up and they're going, uh, no, you go in, no, you go in, no, you go in, no, you go in. Do you smell that? This is terrible. I'm not going anywhere near it, right? Right? It's, it's like, if, if this happens in my house far too often than I want to remember, but... Um, some kid calls from the bathroom, mom, dad, I need some help. And I look at my wife and go, it's your turn. And she's like, it's your turn. You know, none of us want to go in there because we know what we're about to find or some version of what we're about to find, right? They're pointing off. Like they don't, they don't, they don't want to take response. None of them want to go in there, right? For whatever reason, that seems pretty obvious that we don't have to go into too much more detail about, right? But it says that they wait outside and eventually they go in and they find their Lord dead there. Their leader is dead on the floor, in a pool of his own blood and feces. Sick. But this is what the Lord has done. And then we find in verse 27, what happens next. It says, when he arrived, when Ehud, the deliverer of the Israelites, arrived back to his people, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow me, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. 
So they went down after him and they seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites and not just any of them. It says all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the the land had rest for 80 years, right? He blows this horn, this trumpet, to show them, to remind them of what God, how God delivers his people, right? They blew the ram's horn. The reason they did that is because if you go back to Abraham and Isaac, when Abraham's about to sacrifice his son and the Lord provides the sacrifice in this ram that's caught by its horns in the thicket and the brush, right? So from that day forward, they would sound a ram's horn to, to celebrate their deliverance. They would celebrate their deliverance with the sound of this ram's horn. And so they celebrate and then they move forward in victory. They celebrate and then they move forward in victory. And they're celebrating all along the way because they know that the Lord has promised them something that hasn't happened yet, but they can guarantee it's going to happen. And so they're trusting in it and they're hoping in it and they're moving forward down the road. And in doing so, it says that he would go on to lead them and there would be peace for 80 years. The most unlikely of heroes in all of the book of Judges, Ehud, led them to peace for longer than any of the rest of them the most unlikely of heroes. You know, as we consider what takes place in Judges chapter three, there's a couple things I think we, we have to remember. And the first is, is that the Lord uses our weaknesses and he uses the weak. I mean, think about Matthew chapter five, the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who are weak. Blessed are those who are humble. Not blessed are the rich, strong rulers. God uses the weak repeatedly. And the reality is, is we're all weak. And God uses those weaknesses for his glory. We're also reminded that we need things to remind us of the right direction in our lives. Right? We need those mission reminders, those markers that trigger something in us to turn and go back to the mission of God that he's called us to. We're reminded that it is worth fighting for the glory of God. You know, for some reason in our day, fighting for the glory of God has taken a wrong face. For some reason, people think that it's ranting on social media or talking at a water cooler about somebody that's not there. That's not fighting for the glory of God. That's not fighting for the glory of God. Fighting for the glory of God is seeing the brokenness in our world and doing things to change it doing things to change it. I mean, I think about, I think about what our, our kids got to be a part of in our mission projects at BBS this past week. They don't know the extent of it. Ruth, you do. They were a part of doing things to change the brokenness in our world, to help ease the pain of the broken people in our world. God's called us to fight for his glory, not just spout out words to fight for his glory. And he's equipped us with a double-edged sword known as the word of God. He's equipped us with his spirit to live inside of us. He's given us what we need and he's promised us that he won't just be with us, that he's gonna be the one that works through us as we fight for his glory in this world. And as we think about the reality of this underdog story, we'd be remiss if we didn't see Jesus. You know, think about what the Lord provides for them. An unexpected, seemingly weak, a man without power or prominence, 
man who doesn't come from a family of great significance, a man who doesn't come into the world in an incredible way, and God uses that man to deliver his people. (laughs) It's Jesus. We see Jesus in this. A man who came into the world in an unexpected way, a man who was born into a family that was unexpected, a man who didn't have the power and prominence that many wanted him to have, a man who didn't rule with a scepter, but ruled with sacrifice. This is Jesus. Ehud is showing us, he's pointing us forward to who would come to be the ultimate deliverer of God's people. And this morning, my hope is that you see that above everything else. And that as you see that, the next step in this is to understand that Ehud, yes, he was pointing to Jesus, but he was also exemplifying for us something, to boast in our weakness, to be committed to the mission, to fight for the glory of God no matter what the cost. What he's saying is this, give everything you have for the glory of God. Give what you've got for the glory of God. Give it all. Give it all. That's what we just, we're going to sing about that in just a moment. To give it all. Everything we have for the glory of God. You know, this week we we had VBS, right? I think maybe there's some pictures we can show of, of VBS this past week. How many of you in the room were a part of VBS in some way at one of our campuses, specifically this one, a lot of you, several of you? Thank you for giving what you have for the glory of God this week. Thank you for giving what you have so that kids could see and experience and hear the glory of God this week. Because if you didn't, they wouldn't see it. So thank you. Now, I know many of you in this room, you're serving in different ways around our church weekly, right? But if you're not, you need to start giving what you've got for the glory of God every week. Give what you've got for the glory of God every week. God doesn't say, take a break anywhere in the Bible. He describes himself as resting on the seventh day. He doesn't say, take a break. Give what you've got for the glory of God. Now, this is natural for me to say because I'm the next-gen guy, but there's a lot of opportunity in our preschool ministry, in our kids' ministry, in our student ministry to weekly give what you have for the glory of God. But there's also a lot of opportunity serving in in connections, in production. You name it. There's ways to give what you have for the glory of God. And when it's only partial, remember what we said earlier? It's disobedience. You know, I want to encourage you. You think about, when I think about the sacrifice that many of you in this, this room made this past week for VBS, where, you know, over 1,200 kids that we touched across our campuses, we had the chance to interact with and invest in over, I mean, 450 leaders pouring into them. 450 leaders investing in these kids. We raised over $7,800. Pre-K through fifth graders raised over $7,800 for our mission partners in Haiti. $7,800 from elementary school kids. We had over 60 kids that said, I want to talk more about following Jesus or about baptism or learn more about what this whole thing is about. Thank you for giving what you've got for the glory of God. And I will tell you, sometimes we don't see the fruit right away, but it is worth it. It's worth the sacrifice. It's worth not knowing all the details of what it's going to look like a year from now. 
It's worth it to give what you've got for the glory of God. Ehud did. Thankfully, Jesus did. And I wonder if we will. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the way that you work. Thank you for the fact that you're good in everything you do. And I pray this morning that as we remember that and we think about the details that you've given to us in your word, that we would recall that, Father, you haven't done this by accident. You didn't give us these things to, to have, have a, a, an image in our head that might disturb us for a moment or make us laugh or, or any such thing. Father, you've given us these things to remind us that you have a mission you have called us to. You will work through our weaknesses, and that you have called us to fight for your glory in this world. God, would we do that faithfully, knowing that Ehud is a great example of it, that Jesus is the one who enables it in us because he has done this for us. And God, I pray that we would be faithful to you in it. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray this morning for those in this room, Lord, maybe those that are struggling with faithfulness to you. God, would this morning be a reminder that our faithfulness comes when we have a greater glimpse of your goodness. We have a greater glimpse of your faithfulness, that we would be drawn to that. God, I pray this morning for those in this room that don't have a relationship with you. Lord, would, would what they've heard today from your word, would, it, would you use it to open the eyes of their heart to see and know that Jesus Jesus is the ultimate underdog story who is a sacrifice that we need that we could never provide for ourselves. Lord, I pray that even now as we respond that you would give us clarity about what the next step is, not be caught up in the details, not be caught up in all our questions, but that we would be faithful to take our next step. Lord, as you move, would we move. Father, it's in your name we pray together. Amen.